Brenna Walsh is the Energy Coordinator at the Ecology Action Center. She's made a career out of bringing different communities together to strengthen and accelerate climate policy and action. Walsh is focused squarely on understanding what has worked and not worked in the past and on exploring new initiatives to build climate resistant communities. In this interview, I hoped to get a deeper sense of the economic reasons behind the policy measure that's usually referred to as a carbon tax. This thing that's just recently come into effect in Nova Scotia, where I'm located. You know, Nova Scotia lived through the realities of climate change over the last 10 months. We had a post-tropical storm, Fiona, that caused incredible damage. We had record-setting wildfires. We had what turned out to be fatal flash flooding. Brenna breaks down how this measure of carbon pricing is just one part of a whole array of emerging measures for addressing the climate crisis. We have clean fuel regulations, a modest removal of some inefficient fossil fuel subsidies at the federal level, among other policies and incentives. I don't want to spend too much time in this introduction giving an overview of the conversation, actually, because the conversation itself is an overview of what we have in terms of tools for limiting carbon and some of the history of those tools. We start by talking about the conceptual and policy tool of the so-called social cost of carbon and how that social cost is calculated in economic terms. The whole goal, though, is to figure out a means of building really a different system from the fossil fuel-based one that we currently have. Walsh is interested in how to calculate the damages, but she's more interested in bringing the diverse array of people that feel there is not enough being done into the conversation about crafting and supporting solutions. There are a few invaluable resources that Brenna cites that are included in these show notes. Overall, it's a matter though of, of using these resources and conversations like these as a means of going further faster, as she puts it, of making a complex transition simpler, doable, and more seamless for people at the grassroots level. It makes sense to devote a chunk of time to thinking through like, I think the complexities around um, the various tools we have, you know, to decarbonize really the system, the economic system as a whole. And, you know, when you're looking at it, it's like over the last two centuries, fossil fuels have obviously created economic growth and this unbelievable acceleration of everything. Yeah. But of course now, it's impossible to deny that the extraction and burning of these types of fuels is devastating for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're at a point where it's so clear the summer of wildfires, the flooding we just saw in Nova Scotia, where like an entire summer's worth of rain inundated us for 24 hours. Um, you know, it, it, they give us an opportunity to provide a tangible definition of the idea of the social cost of carbon. Um, just to kind of uh, contextualize it, the social cost of carbon tries to quantify the economic damage caused by each ton of greenhouse gas emissions. The Canadian federal government has recently increased the estimate to $261 per ton, which is actually appropriately high compared with most other countries that calculate the number, maybe with the exception of Germany, which estimates it at $225 and at $800 per metric ton of carbon if we take into account the question of equity. So 
that number has gone up in Canada from $57 to $261. The, the social cost of carbon as like a tool is supposed to show economists and policymakers that the cost of doing nothing to address climate change uh, is unbelievably high. Um, but what I've been trying to understand and what I'm hoping you can kind of help us wrap our heads around is the relationship between this policy tool, this like economic assessment in, in dollars of the cost of emissions and carbon pricing. So the social cost of carbon helps us to get a better understanding, like you said, of what emitting so much carbon as we do actually costs us. And so this warming and pollution um, that comes with this and what it's costing us today and what it may cost us in the future if we don't take uh, more action to reduce these emiss- emissions. And so there are you know, typically quite a few things that might be added into that calculation. Some of the things that you c- might be able to think of are costs of increased hospital visits from polluted air or from extreme heat or costs of repair of damage to property or roads and bridges where there was this extreme weather event like the big rainstorm and flooding um, mm. that we saw in Nova Scotia last week. So we're already seeing these costs today. And as you mentioned, the social cost of carbon is now set at um, over $250 in Canada for 2023, but that's actually going to go up. The estimate is that it's going to go up even more to $294 by 2030. So that cost is expected to go up. And, um, you know, as we see those different, um, you know, impacts continuing to grow. And so the carbon tax is kind of like a bit of a, you know, a pairing with that. That's the amount to be paid for one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent emitted. So that's just the price on pollution. And as you mentioned, that price is currently at $65 per ton and will increase by $15 a year until 2030 when it's going to hit $170 per ton. And so the money collected from the carbon pricing goes back to Canadians through the Climate Action Incentive. And the amount that were funded is decided province by province, depending on provincial circumstances. I was actually really excited to see that first installment of the Climate Action Incentive payment in my bank account earlier this month. So that was kind of neat to see that come back. Um, through that mechanism. Um, And so Mm -hmm. this money gets distributed through Revenue Canada once every three months. And though some polluting industries are pushing that increase that they have to pay because of the price on carbon to citizens right now, the idea is that eventually the carbon price will be high enough that industries will shift to lower carbon ways of doing business. Um, But in the meantime, luckily, we're protected by that climate action incentive payments. Um, And so Mm -hmm. thinking about the relationship between the social cost of carbon and the carbon tax, um, which one being this looking at really the societal cost of pollution and other being the price on pollution, there is even an argument that the carbon tax um, could be price could be put up as high as that social cost of carbon. So they almost balanced each other in that way. Yeah, I get that. And, and yet I think like the tricky thing for folks is like um, understanding the economics of uh, a social cost, right? Um, and I guess like the, it, it makes me think about this conversation that I had with, um, you know, someone from Intact, the insurance company that, you know, the, the reason we price pollution is that we've to this point largely made nature priceless in our minds and that has made it worthless. Um, and like, it's hard to wrap your head around that too. Um, that the a system by which you know there is no price on the destruction of nature leads to the exploitation of nature, um, and so this is in some ways I think maybe a reaction against that logic. 
But you know, now that we're on to the question of carbon pricing or a so-called carbon tax, um, it's important, I think, to put these newly applied um, regulations, the federal carbon tax, in perspective. Um, I read this this big document, kind of a policy academic document titled Decarbonizing the U.S. Economy. Um, and in that, the authors say that, quote, four former Federal Reserve chairs, 27 Nobel laureates, and over 3,000 economists recently signed a petition stating that a carbon tax offers the most cost-effective lever to reduce emissions at the scale and speed that's necessary. Um, so the consensus is that if we don't increase the cost of these carbon intensive activities, no climate action is really possible. Um, you know, the, the highest carbon tax, I guess, in the world is paid in Sweden at around $125 per ton of CO2. We know that this measure isn't exactly enough to fight climate change, but we also know that it's effective in driving down emissions. Why do you think it's being contested here in Canada's Atlantic provinces? There is currently a price on carbon in 46 different countries around the world, and it's been seen as a really effective um, way to help countries to reduce their emissions. And a carbon tax was even put, first put in place in Finland in 1991. So that, that's been used for you know quite a few years now um, and has a long history. Putting a price on pollution through a carbon tax is one of the things that won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2018. So I'm not an economist by any means, um, but just, you know, I think it's really interesting that William Nordsham and Paul Romer were recognized for this work mm -hmm. connecting um, economics to climate change and a price on pollution being the top solution to reduce emissions. As you were mentioning, you know, we've seen lots of impacts of climate change in Nova Scotia over the last um, year. And, you know, we are, they, we are starting to be able to see some of those costs incurring um, across Atlantic Canada. They're now estimating that there was um, $800 million in insured charges um, from Hurricane Fiona. And then with the recent fires in Tantalan, um, $165 million um, in damages. So we're starting to see different, you know, different costs play out from these impacts. And so particularly disappointing to still see um, this being the carbon tax being contested in Atlantic Canada, as we're seeing, you know, the more and more impacts of climate change, it's affecting, um, it's affecting our economy, certainly, but also affecting people's lives and livelihoods. It's been a really stressful summer here in, in Nova Scotia with the first the fires that are really new for us. Um, and then the flooding that happened over the last few last few weeks. Mm -hmm. The government of Nova Scotia does say it's a climate champion, but it spends a lot of time bickering with other levels of government instead of working together to mitigate the climate emergency. So it is a tough time now for many people with affordability being a big concern. And then these other impacts that we've seen uh, coming out of uh, the COVID crisis and then with the war on Ukraine starting at the beginning of last year. And But, you know, we have a really carbon intensive grid in Nova Scotia. We have high rates of heating with oil and a good portion of the population that live in rural areas who do depend on cars a lot to drive for their daily activities. You know, the transition to lower carbon ways of life will cost some money, um, but there are solutions in play. Uh, sometimes we hear from our our government that it doesn't sound like those solutions are out there. Um, but moving to a net zero grid by 2035 is possible in Nova Scotia, and that can be done in ways that minimize the rate increases that you might be worried about. Um, heat, heat pumps can replace oil for heating, which do work well 
in our cold parts of winter and do double as air conditioning, which is becoming more and more important as a in the province as summers get hotter. Um, and public and active transport options can be introduced in places where they aren't available already, um, as well as EVs being swapped out for gas cars, which uh, cost less to run. If there is support to switch these lower carbon solutions, people will be less impacted by the price of the carbon tax, though they will mm -hmm. still get this same amount back in the climate action incentive payment. So if they can, you know, if people can switch, whether that's by their own means or better through some other support from government, they get those benefits from switching to something that's lower, lower pollution, um, also often cost less to run, uh, but they also get the, these uh, same incentives back. And so the provincial government could be working with other levels of government more effectively to make these options more feasible for Nova Scotia. They could be doing things like supporting the Atlantic Loop, which would help reduce rate pressures as we transition to a low carbon electricity grid, work with federal government to provide more support for transition to heat pumps and electric vehicles. Some of that has already been done, but there's more that could, could be done from both levels of government. And so the carbon tax is just meant to be one tool in the toolkit which governments are able to use to reduce emissions. And then adding further tools to support this transition will be able to make us go further faster. I love that. Yeah, going further faster. Because like we have the solutions clearly that we need. There's a massive, uh, like there's no end to the sort of um, solar futures or wind powered futures that people can imagine. Um, but as you say, like building that infrastructure is going to take money. It's going to take um, enormous amounts of investment and it will likely take, you know, as it were, stranding fossil fuel investments or at least pivoting away. But those solutions require, it sounds like you're saying like certain kinds of um, communication tools as well. Like you do need to generate like buy-in at the same time, the ways in which people who care about the the economic devastation that climate change will create are sometimes seen as like exploiting the crisis of wildfires or floods. Um, but I think it feels as though we're reaching a little bit of a tipping point where the social license of fossil fuel infrastructure, it's, it's waning to a certain extent. Uh, and there is more and more political will to decarbonize as fast as possible. The cost of living, for example, is this really complex crisis and it needs to be treated as one and not treated as a political football, which I think is often how it's treated. And so like, you know, one of the things that's often wielded as a way of undermining carbon pricing is the idea that it's going to impose an unfair burden on low income households, you know, opponents of carbon pricing, like the provincial governments of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have spent money uh, on advertising to make the point that we need to push back on the federal carbon backstop, as it's called, creating all this kind of friction. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to what their argument on this point misses about the regulations. I know that the Ecology Action Center has said that if, you know, if the policies function the way they're supposed to, they're supposed to put equity first. Yeah, I think that, again, kind of, you know, as you mentioned, the fact that some governments have been spending money to put out ads to oppose this pri this carbon pricing and really just having this rhetoric that there is no that there will be no benefit to um, to Nova Scotians or Atlantic Canadians with the carbon tax but then also 
you know, in some of that rhetoric, not mentioning these solutions, like you said, mm-hmm. um, not mentioning the solutions, not mentioning, you know, some of the nuance that will need to be worked through in whatever is being put forward, um, you know, to move towards low carbon economy. And so it, it in a way minimizes the problem a little bit um, mm-hmm. and is really disappointing to see that that money is being spent to do that, you know, time and effort were put into developing those ads, not withstanding, you know, just the money that was spent to to play them. And so really disappointed that that effort isn't being put to other uses. You know, the cost, some of the cost increases incurred, you know, for heating, home heating, as well as gas pumps from the carbon tax might be things that are a little bit more difficult to absorb for some in the short term, certainly. However, the studies that have been done on the tax as it was put in do show that 80% of people will get more back in the climate action incentive payments than the additional amounts that they're going to have to pay at the pump for oil, for gas or oil. Um, So Mm -hmm. with that paying payment coming in every three months, this should help support some of those negative effects of the carbon tax for those who might feel it most. So it is good that that is happening, you know, fairly frequently. Um, mm-hmm. And as those with higher incomes are more likely to have larger spaces to heat or have multiple cars, they will be more likely the people that don't get as much back through that climate action incentive as they pay. Um, I think it's important to mention that for a family of four in Nova Scotia, that payback every three months will be $248 this year. And so that's something, you know, that information hasn't been shared very widely um, by the, you know, some people in the provincial government. So another thing to note is that there was this recognition, I think, that there is a significant portion of households in Nova Scotia that heat with oil. And so the carbon price didn't come into force in on January 1st, 2023, like it did in other provinces. There was, you know, some requests made by premiers in Atlantic Canada to have, you know, this carbon tax not apply. But, you know, there was some recognition from the from the federal government that there was would be potentially impacts through the winter. And so this putting the tax in place was delayed until July 1st, 2023. Um, This also applied in Newfoundland and Labrador and PEI. And so it did have, you know, did have less impact this winter where there was already people that were going to be having a tough time with some large impacts of inflation and affordability concerns. And Mm -hmm. in November 2022, the federal government also announced additional funding through the oil to heat pump affordability grant which provide an additional $5,000 for those in low income to switch to heat pumps on top of existing grants and incentives from both the provincial and federal government. So there, you know, there is money being put in um, already by the federal and provincial governments for some of this switching and efficient, you know, making things more efficient so that um, there won't be as many costs to of oil um, as we go forward. But there is this additional kind of funding put in place. And this was um, an idea of, the idea of kind of combining delaying the state a little bit of the carbon tax coming into force and this additional funding was trying to try to accelerate the transition to heat pumps for those who would maybe have the most trouble paying for those higher fuel oil costs um, mm-hmm. when the heat's turned back on this coming winter. So coming back to the fact that the carbon tax is just one of the tools that's being used to help address climate change, but it needs to be coupled with these additional supports and incentives to make decarbonizing possible. An example of something that way that could this could be expanded is that this oil to heat pump affordability program, which currently offers additional funding to low income households, could be extended to provide free heat pumps to income qualified households that could just eliminate this burden of switching to heat pumps altogether and help these households to save money on bills. That's something that we've put forward 
as a proposal for budget 2024. We'll have to see if that's taken up, but um, mm. they have a similar program already in PEI. So thinking about kind of pushing for support from the provincial government of Nova Scotia, you know, seems like a, a little bit more of an effective use of time than paying for advertisements, just attacking the program. For sure. Um, and the kind of thing that like, of course the public would support like there's there's going to be no end to the support for that i think the the thing that it addresses in you know just like thinking about heating for example is like it is the case that we're in a situation where fossil fuels are not currently like inessential right if we wanted to compare it to other forms of phase out you know phasing out something like you know it's like we don't need plastic bags right we don't need cigarettes like these are things that we don't need and could do without um, and that are are bad for our health in the long run um fossil fuels are are baked in as it were and like that makes it very difficult for people to conceive of moving away from it but you know creating an affordability program for doing so it means like converting i would say the the shock of recognition where you know like there was a point at which i simply didn't see the number of heating oil tanks that were attached to people's houses in Nova Scotia. And then when it starts to be narrated to you, right? Like that this thing, this thing that we take for granted is maybe a little bit kind of perverse and and certainly kind of poisonous. Um, Having oil, you know, in in, as part of your home um, to heat it, like then you begin to see it. But it's hard even at that point where you're kind of shocked by the recognition of how ubiquitous it is to understand how you're going to move away from it. But I think programs like this provide people with like a material means basically for doing that. I wanted to shift gears slightly, but kind of stay on this problem of communicating the reasons for climate policy to people, um, even when like it might be costly in economic terms. The Ecology Action Center has been unwavering in its messaging around uh, the newly enacted clean fuel regulations, which are separate from the carbon tax, but part of this package of incentives, regulations, policies that are being put in place to help us reduce emissions. Um, You've written that this policy, quote, will help all four Atlantic provinces achieve their net zero goals while also supporting their economies and creating jobs. Um, And yet in the opinion piece you co-authored, you write that Atlantic premiers are working to, quote, instill fear and hesitation in the public around these clean fuel uh, policies. Um, Just wondered, like, what's your sense of public sentiment about this particular package of decarbonization measures? Like, do do you think people understand what the clean fuel regulations are and imply? We're really hearing increasing concern from people as we speak to people about the climate emergency and people really asking, you know, why is action so slow? What can we do? What are government, what are government doing? And I think we hear that from more and more and a more and more diverse group of people. So while the carbon tax puts a price on pollution um, and, you know, that's paid for every ton of pollution emitted, the clean fuel regulation requires that suppliers of gas and diesel make their processes more efficient by 15% by 2030, which is something that, you know, shouldn't be too hard for companies, you know, having record profits in the last year shouldn't really be a super big lift. Um, one thing to know about the clean fuel regulation um, is that 
this was something that was, you know, discussed and debated and come came to an agreement between the federal government and provinces over a period of six years. And a lot mm-hmm. of the things that were requested by Atlantic premiers during the time that this regulation was being developed were integrated into, you know, the regulation as it currently stands. Um, and so this clean fuel regulation provides a bit of a complement to the price on pollution. Uh, it's trying to move companies to emit less. So, you know, there'll be less pollution that will be being paid for. And so some of the modeling done as that regulation was being developed over those six years said that there shouldn't really be a cost to consumers for this regulation for the first few years, but there there may be a small cost by 2030, around eight cents. So, Mm -hmm. however, you know, we are seeing the Nova Scotia Utility and Review Board approve a cost increase at the pumps that, you know, started at I believe it was the 7th of July in Nova Scotia of four cents and in New Brunswick at the, the 1st of July, an increase of eight cents, you know, July of this year, even though that's right around the same amount that was estimated, that would be, you know, the justified cost increase by 2030. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. So in the request for these increases, some of the highest cost options were selected by the suppliers to comply. And so they made those requests to the provincial bodies, these utility boards. Um, and so I really wanted to emphasize that though this regulation is federal, the increases were approved by these provincial uh, regulating bodies. And so the Nova Scotia and New Brunswick governments raised these concerns You know, before this clean fuel regulation was going to come into force force through mm-hmm. the spring and, and into June, but that, it, you know, it would cause undue increases to their uh, in cost to their citizens. But in a way, they've allowed and enabled this, these increases to play out in a way that wasn't really needed. So, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's just this interesting interplay. And, you know, as more and more people, particularly in Nova Scotia, are supporting strong climate action, it's interesting to see these things happening at the provincial level as these different... Um, climate policies come into play. Um, you know, there are real concerns around affordability and adding cost um, to actually on climate change to the list of other important things that, you know, where there might be additional costs for like improving healthcare and addressing the housing crisis that can can seem daunting. So, um, but we really think that there, this is why, you know, all level of government need to really work together to address the climate emergency and be putting pressure on the fossil fuel companies, you know, and not allowing them to push through these increases when it's not, it really isn't, isn't needed um, Mm -hmm. and not pointing fingers at each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the goals in some ways are, are simple and, and the goal of efficiency, it should be just like this universal uh, win as it were, like Holly Jean Buck talks about the, you know, the promise and in some ways like the kind of um, the threat of kind of creating cleaner, fossil fuels, more or less, right? Like figuring out ways to make the extractive process cleaner, she says, might unfortunately like lead to um, uh, the kind of continuation of fossil fuels social license in a way, right? Because you make it feel safer to pump this stuff and burn this stuff when really we need to, you know, divest and phase out uh, as much as possible. But at the very least, as you say, this is less pollution that these companies have to pay for. So it's even in their best interest to do it. So I don't know. I just, like I find it staggering that there is the amount of pushback that there is. Um, and, you know, I want to ask you a little bit about like, I, I want to ask more about the clean fuel regulations 
Um, but I think the way to get there, because I see parallels with the system that we used to have in Nova Scotia, the cap and trade system, um, you know, I want, I wondered if you could kind of give us, uh, a little bit of a history lesson. Like it's worth noting as the, uh, EAC's carbon pricing FAQ does, um, that lower income populations stand to suffer like the worst effects of the climate emergency. All the data shows this, right? Um, if we don't do anything to curb emissions, that is what is going to happen. And on the point of, you know, this, this FAQ, which is, you know, such a great resource for so many reasons, uh, it also points out that, quote, part of the reason we're paying more than any other province um, is due to our former cap and trade system. And I just wondered if you could kind of give us more clarity on this. What are the differences between a cap and trade system, which is a term I've always struggled with, and a carbon tax, which is a term that apparently is a bit of a misnomer. Um, can you help listeners basically understand the path from then to now and how the former system impacts our current moment? First, I'll just speak really quickly to that first point, the fact that lower income people often do feel the effects of climate change first and worst um, than those who do have more means. And so it is really one of the reasons that addressing the climate emergency is so important because there are often additional stressors that people are feeling and just adding, you know, adding these ones related to the impacts of climate change is really not what anybody needs. Um, extreme heat is an example. People that have lower income may not have access to shelter from extreme heat or access to air conditioning to cool down. And so this can cause exacerbated um, exacerbation of existing or, um, you know, additional health effects. But one thing I wanted to forward is last year in Vancouver, the city council approved a policy which required that all new buildings higher than three stories have to have built-in air conditioning. So this is something that would require that um, building owners and landlords provide air conditioning for all citizens, um, which could really, you know, be able to mitigate some of the effects of extreme heat. And I think it's particularly relevant in Vancouver, where you often have to close the windows where there's wildfire smoke. Um, and tall buildings get much hotter, right? Yeah, and sometimes you know, having lived, I haven't lived in a in a super tall building in a in a mm. hot city, but even just living on the fourth floor, I know that compared to the bottom floors, my apartment was often hotter than you know than some of the lower floors. So it can be really hard. Um, and so, air conditioning is fairly uncommon in Nova Scotia, but um, you know, as we have move to this warmer climate, but also I think a lot of people recognized when we did have wildfire smoke in the air earlier this summer, that it was really difficult to figure out what was best to do in terms of staying cool, but also, um, you know, breathe, being able to breathe clean, clean air, which are kind of two different things that might come along with increasing impacts of climate change. But that switch to a heat pump um, has the double benefit of providing cooling in the summer as well as switching mm -hmm. away from an oil furnace um, and is often, you know, less costly to run in the long term. You don't have to, you know, worry about the impacts of oil prices on that. Um, so it is a bit of a win-win in both reducing emissions but providing that extra protection, um, particularly for vulnerable populations to the effects of climate change. Going back to the carbon pricing um, conversation, when the carbon tax came into effect in July, the increase at the pumps um, in Nova Scotia was the largest that in any mm. other province. There's kind of two main um, things that come out of putting a price on carbon, a cap and trade system, or um, 
a carbon tax. And so a cap and trade system puts a cap on the amount of emissions that can be emitted in this case of the previous system of the province of Nova Scotia, um, mm-hmm. and then allows for trade between those who emit um, of those kind of carbon, tons of carbon. Which um, is the confusing part for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so, what are they trading? You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. the carbon emission credits are often traded through an auction, um, which generates revenue and that can be cycled back into the system to do things like invest in low emitting technologies or those that can build hmm. um, climate resilience. And so it's trading kind of like tons of carbon emitted. So you have, I think there's, you know, often an over that overall cap, but then, you know, you know who you're big emitters are going to be. And so within that cap, a certain number of carbon ton credits, you know, credits of one ton of carbon are distributed to different players. And then just, you know, going off of what their previous emissions have been and the proportions, I think, you know, is the way it's typically done. And so that's kind of who ends up with credits that can be traded within the system. The carbon tax puts a price on every ton of CO2 equivalent that's emitted. And then our revenue neutral carbon tax reimburses all the households through the climate action incentives. So the redistribution of money is you know, of, fun, of revenue from the way that carbon is priced in the two systems happens a little bit differently. Um, and, you know, within whichever entity that has a cap and trade system, the redistribution of those revenues happens in a, you know, in a way that is decided by that entity. Um, mm. And, you know, similar with the the carbon tax, the federal government decided to have this car- revenue neutral carbon tax is something that you might hear it called. Um, and that's because all of the climate actions, you know, all of the revenue is distributed through that climate action incentive payment. Going back to kind of how we came to this system, after Canada signed the Paris Agreement, the federal government and all the provinces and the territories got together to develop a plan to reduce emissions. And one of the things that they agreed on in 2016 um, was to put a price on pollution across Canada. And so every province had the option to develop their own carbon pricing plan, uh, either a cap and trade system or a carbon tax, or accept what is called the federal carbon backstop, which we mentioned earlier. This is just mm-hmm. kind of the fallback minimum requirement for putting a price on cl- pollution, um, and that's paying a set carbon tax. Hmm. So that carbon tax, you know, in 2023 is that amount of $65 per ton. Um, Mm -hmm. When this carbon pricing came into effect in 2019, Nova Scotia put forward a cap and trade program, which at the time met the minimum requirements for the federal government um, as its carbon pricing system. And that was used until the end of 2022. And then in 2021, the federal government announced that it would Um, that the minimum requirements would be lowered for meeting the carbon pricing program and that the provinces had until September 2022, a year later, to submit a new carbon pricing plan that would meet these new minimum requirements, or they would just use this federal carbon backstop again and pay Mm -hmm. the new amount of the carbon tax. So Nova Scotia concluded that it would be hard to set up a similar cap and trade system and that would meet the new requirements. So it decided actually not to submit a plan. It asked for an exemption to have have to submit one, arguing that they would be already doing enough to reduce emissions and therefore that the carbon tax wasn't needed in the province. And so, you know, recognizing that the carbon tax um, or a carbon pricing system is really important complementary measure to what provinces are already doing, the federal government didn't accept this request. And therefore, the new carbon pricing system used in Nova Scotia is this federal carbon backstop. The old system didn't induce 
emissions reductions as well as it was intended. And so it was pricing carbon lower than in other places. And so this is one of the reasons that the change in fuel prices when the federal carbon backstop came into effect was the highest in Nova Scotia um, across the country. So because the previous system was not as effective, so Nova Scotia kind of had a lot of catching up to do in terms of being compliant with the new system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I think the the thing that I learned from reading somebody like Holly Jean Buck's work is that um, carbon pricing, something like carbon pricing, reducing it just to like a math problem, like what what should the exact number be, uh, actually doesn't address again like the complexity of the problem socially. You know, like it is, and having that kind of information, the analysis that says like, okay we have a price, it is producing these kinds of social effects, that is more valuable, um, I think, than just like the purely abstract policy calculations um, that, you know, just don't necessarily resonate with people. Like it's it's hard um, for people to connect. And so making as you as you are, the connections clear in, in a more accessible way and trying to demystify the rationale for these policy decisions is just like really important, I think, um, at this, let's face it, kind of cataclysmic moment. Um, but yeah, I, I mentioned that I wanted to ask a bit more about the clean fuel regulations. So because like the way I un- understand it, or maybe misunderstand it, is that it is kind of a cap and trade scheme to some extent, like, the you know, these carbon intensive industries, right, companies that are making gas and diesel refining uh, fuels, uh, like the energy industry, they are able under these regulations to kind of trade credits for, for complying with the regulations. Am I getting that wrong? There is a credit trading component in the clean fuel regulation. Yes. Uh, the okay. regulation is designed to support emission reductions through lower carbon intensity of a fuel from extraction, refining, distribution, and through the use of the fuel. In the system, producers and importers of gas and diesel must create or buy credits to get their reductions requirements met. And as I said previously, they need to reduce a certain amount every year starting in 2023 and then get to this overall reduction of 15% of emissions by 2030. And Mm -hmm. so this system, I think, is kind of interesting and it could be interesting to look further into the details. But credits can be created by lowering carbon intensity of a fuel supplying low carbon fuels like biofuels, so biodiesel or ethanol, or by supplying fuel or energy for low carbon vehicles like electric vehicles or hydrogen hydrogen fuel cell cars. Right. So you're incentivizing that move, that transition. Yes. It it's it's a lot. Again, like this this is all a lot, right? To think about the economic system. And so I think like um it does make sense to just try to keep focusing as as much as we can on the local um and 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 sort of engage with um how the sort of figure figurative average person is going to deal with these measures and and think through them and navigate them uh you mentioned that carbon pricing is designed to increase every year um put it in and put more and more pressure on this fossil fuel based infrastructure to shift away from business as usual i think it's important to talk about like what that estimated price that we're going to get to is, um, you know, if it's increasing every year, why is that appropriate? 
um, given like other estimates, like the social cost of carbon and, and how that seems to go up as well in lockstep with carbon pricing. Um, I think, it, you know, it'd be very possible to leverage this fact of a continually rising carbon tax or carbon pricing to, as you put it in your op-ed, like instill fear and hesitation. That notion of like an increasing tax on something that we currently can't avoid is likely to inspire a sense of anxiety, um, aversion in the public. I'm just like, I'm wondering in terms of the communications challenge, how it can instead inspire a sense that actually our government is moving to take action on the climate emergency by using what it can use, these market mechanisms to take fossil fuels out of our everyday lives um, and maybe also basically break the overpowering influence of the fossil fuel industry in our economy. I think one of the interesting things to think about is right now, the price on carbon that has increased quite a bit in Canada in the last few years and will continue to increase is $65 a ton. And as we said, the um, social cost of carbon is right now over $250 a ton. And as mm -hmm. we mentioned, you know, that's real, even though it's a little bit more complicated to break down, that is real cost likely being incurred, you know, for our society right now because of climate change. And however, you know, just jumping that cost of the carbon tax up to $250 a ton would be quite a bit of a shock to a lot of people and might have, you know, some, that might have some um, difficult implications for people. And so sure. people, you know, those people that are working on the economics of this do balance between, you know, increasing that cost of the carbon tax by a significant amount, an amount that will be um, important for those that are producing carbon intensive, um, you know, things that are more carbon intensive and really do induce them to make those changes. But um, that is also isn't, you know, a really shock on the system to have that kind of come mm -hmm. into. Um, mm -hmm. So really that balance, I think is interesting. But I think that we are seeing, you know, more and more support for putting that pressure on fossil fuel industries, like you were saying. Um, and so I think that's really important to kind of up that pressure. Um, but yeah, it's totally understandable that a new tax and new costs may not be the most exciting things to introduce, but really putting that price on pollution is one of the most effective ways to drive down emissions along with these incentives that will allow people to take part in the transition. So I think that can, it is important action to be seeing from government. Um, and just as I kind of broke down the credits in the clean fuel regulation and kind of what, what that looks like, um, complying looks like, I think it's just interesting to kind of take a look at kind of the three key effects of a carbon pricing system. And so mm -hmm. it, you know, is meant to let consumers know what goods and services are more carbon intensive. So you see that, um, you know, increased costs on gas, but you don't see it affecting the cost of an electric vehicle, for example. Um, it's less, lets producers know what goods and services are more cost carbon intensive, but then also pushes innovation to produce more affordable, low carbon alternatives. Like we're mentioning that the cost to producers of the carbon tax may be passed on to consumers, but it does send that market signal that emitting less carbon is better for business. And so um, as a, that will be a key part of the pathway to moving to a low carbon economy overall. And so I think, you know, as you were saying, there we can put more and more pressure with that price um, 
that fossil fuel companies have to pay as more as well as that bottom up pressure from people that want to see those low carbon alternatives be available and at lower cost. Um, and so in a way, it provides some of this pressure from both sides, along with other policies and regulations, as well as those incentives. That will be a really key piece to reaching our climate goals across Canada. That is also really helpful. Like, I think just the the breakdown of those three things, right? And and I liked a couple of kind of words you used there, um, that it's it's a signal, right? Like there's this signal uh, that these these cost measures, these economic um, constraints are meant to, um, you know, meant to send out. And it's also like the the word you use was see, that people want to see these changes. Um, you know, I think we've learned in climate communication that people don't respond to um, the appropriate fear we should feel around climate breakdown um, in the same way that they might respond to messages around how they can like manage their individual health, because you don't see a way to address the problem as an individual, right? It's, it's just not in your, it's not in your uh, purview. You can't really imagine a way to influence um, things individually. So being able to see changes as a result of these kinds of measures, I think could actually be transformative politically. Um, and on this point, you know, the EAC's FAQ says something that I don't see reported in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, the communications, uh, you know, the messaging here is, is pretty important. Um, so I was hoping you could expand on this, this one part where you say um, the, the EAC points out that the federal carbon backstop is designed in part to support small businesses and indigenous communities. Funds raised from large emitters are reinvested into efforts to decarbonize, such as renewable energy infrastructure, sustainable transportation, and efficiency measures. Um, you know, we want to see those changes and, and redirecting funds, redistributing them to make that happen. You know, that's the kind of thing that does inspire uh, material hope. Um, and, you know, the, um, the author Robert Pollan talks about this. In one of his essays, he says, like, a carbon tax can raise large amounts of revenue for clean energy investments and for uh, redirecting funds to lower income households. Can you just kind of uh, unpack how the distribution of financial resources from carbon pricing is meant to work and how it might lead to us being able to see the kind of change that you described? Yeah, so in provinces like Nova Scotia that have the federal carbon backstop, as you mentioned, um, the revenue from the federal carbon tax, 90% of that will go towards coming directly back to citizens through the climate action incentive. And that's, you know, as we said, the same amount for everybody in Nova Scotia. Um, and you get that money back every three months. Um, additionally, mm -hmm. there's um, additional 10% if you live in rural area um, that are currently more car dependent. So I think that could be um, an interesting way to think about that redistribution. There's another 10% um, that of that revenue that hasn't been allocated from that uh, in those climate action incentives. And that's actually used to support small and medium sized businesses who are who might be impacted more strongly by these rising costs of gas and oil. Um, and that's distributed through what's called the fuel change proceeds pro return program. And so that's something that people can businesses um, can apply for to get some of that money back. 
Um, there's a few other mechanisms, but I think that's the most obvious and kind of the, the biggest, the one that's highlighted in um, that, what is happening to that additional 10%. As that federal carbon backstop is revenue neutral, the federal government isn't getting any of that money back directly. So the 90 plus 10% oh, is the okay. full the full amount. Um, and so the revenue from the carbon tax is distributed in these two ways. Uh, but again, you know, with that larger 90%, the higher income households are more likely to be spending more on gas and oil than those in lower income. Um, and with everybody getting the same rebate, it can distribute some of that money back to lower income households as well, as well as that kind of additional support for um, small and medium businesses that may be impacted. I think there's also um, some in particular industries like farming that are um, also exempt from some of the fuel, um, the carbon tax increases on fuel. And so I think that'll, you know, ensuring that that is effective to not unduly impact them will be important as we go forward as well. I think so too. I mean, it's like this obviously colossal, unwieldy problem. Um, but, you know, I, the reason I really appreciate you um, having this conversation is that it takes this obviously overwhelming issue of like a runaway warming of the earth's surface um, that we're all constantly now, I think, forced to engage with. That's the result of this acceleration of everything um, and this focus on economic growth. Um, you know, that moment where growth has, has sort of, you know, turned into something unwieldy and very dangerous does ne clearly necessitate crisis measures. Like it is all hands on deck, like we are facing an emergency. And so it feels to me useful in that context to as fast as we need to go to still slow our thinking down and focus on um, where the conversation is, um, where action is happening. And it, it does feel to me in, in the reading that I've done that there are like two dominant modes. The response to the crisis seems to take if we are in groups that are trying to take it seriously. Um, there is on the one hand, the so-called degrowth path that's focused on like radically shrinking the economy uh, and decelerating, degrow degrowing. And then there's like the more Green New Deal path that's focused on, it feels like kind of just shifting it, right? Recalibrating the economy in the interest of what's called green growth. Um, you know, so what, what I'm kind of wondering about is whether we can zoom out and see both of these uh, approaches as kind of viable parts of the solution. As you're mentioning, I think there is a bit of kind of both of those models that are needed. This is, you know, mm. a large transformation, that, but in a way it can really give us space to think about how the systems um, that we are building for the future can look differently than the ones we have now. Um, and again, you know, there's some people that will lean really towards um, the fact that technological solutions will be the, you know, the, the most important and deserve the most focus. But I think there's really value to bringing, you know, many people into the conversation and really trying to expand the way that we're thinking about this large complex problem. Um, I wanted to bring an example relating to electric vehicles into answer this question, because I think it for me was something that I had never, you know, I hadn't really thought about it this way. And um, so I think it can really bring better um, awareness to the connectivity between our consumption and production habits. And, um, 
you know, think about solutions that emit less greenhouse gases. But we do mm-hmm. know, you know, in thinking about that, that electric vehicles do themselves have impacts. Um, but, you know, in rethinking our systems, we can maybe reduce these impacts and provide some other societal improvements as well. And so really kind of bringing different people and thinkers together to kind of address this challenge, I think, will be really important. But, you know, as you're mentioning, um, we really need to accelerate ways of doing that as we are in this crisis. So bringing mm-hmm. people in and, and kind of thinking through these things. So looking at this electric vehicle example, um, we do know that the will likely be an increase in lithium mining needed for batteries for electric vehicles. Um, and that has certainly has some environmental and social concerns. I, mm. the study that I saw and um, that was published in January of 2023 by, uh, Thea Ria Franco and colleagues at the university of California Davis, I thought was really interesting as it looked at a few changes that could be made to reduce that amount of lithium that would be needed as we move away from gas powered vehicles mm. to electric vehicles. And so, uh, you know, they were looking at the U S scale and they said, you know, if they replaced, uh, you know, if they kind of swapped current cars for cars that look just like those um, in the U.S., you know, making that switch from gas vehicles to EVs, those switching those cars and kind of doing no changes would require three times the amount of lithium that's being produced in the world right now just for the cars in the U.S. So that, you know, that sounds mm-hmm. like a pretty... Um, that sounds like it could be pretty problematic in terms of, you know, the increase yeah. that would be of mining that would be needed across the world to make that switch. But then they looked at some of the kind of some subtleties within that. And they found it that if the rate of car ownership in the U.S. stayed the same, but they switched that, but there was a switch to smaller car styles like that are more typical in Europe, which would mm-hmm. need then need smaller batteries and less lithium. They For would sure, be yeah. there'd be a 42 percent reduction in the amount of lithium that would be needed to make all those switch to cars by um, wow. in the US by 2050. And then if you um, add a shift to more people using active and public transit, um, so and the, so the car dependence in the US got a little closer to European cities, um, that need for lithium dropped to six by 61%. Um, <laughs> and then if they looked further, like if you move to cities that are um, a little more dense um, and public and active transit are being really accessible and incentivized, um, and more convenient to use, the amount that of lithium would be needed dropped by 92%. So that's a pretty drastic change that, you know, some of those some of those shifts that would be needed, maybe you wouldn't make them all the way, um, wouldn't maybe get to all the way to 92% reduction. But as we look to address climate change, we can kind of push for these changes in the way that our systems work. And they can reduce mm-hmm. both reduce the impacts of climate change, but also, you know, make our communities better to live, work towards some of the complete community uh, models that we're we also look at at the AAC and have a lot of other benefits. So a combination of policies like the carbon tax, um, you know, and others can help to push our society um, and economic systems towards these changes. Yeah, that's really just like clear and encouraging. Um, And it's, it's based in like data, which I think makes it sort of, you know, a potent tool for, um, you know, policy action as well, which is really useful. I did want to give you an opportunity if you if you had any thoughts on the the recent annan- announcement of uh, this like federal removal of fossil fuel subsidies in Canada. Um, you know, this is something that I've heard reported on in a bunch of different ways. 
Um, you know, and, and it just feels to me like it's, it's not, it's, it's not exactly where we need, like, it's good, but it's not, it's not everything, right? It's not a complete vision. And, you know, I mentioned Holly Jean Buck a few times because I've learned so much from her work. She, she talks about like the value of subsidy removal needing to be calculated with a social logic, not just a carbon logic. And it does sort of feel like Canada is foregrounding the carbon logic uh, when it comes to removing these, these subsidies for fossil fuel companies. Um, you know, some, some countries spend more on fossil fuel subsidies than on health or education. Um, and, and you do have like a push for fossil fuel subsidy reform. It's, it, you know, basically a, a reform that doesn't install forms of economic austerity because like fossil fuel infrastructure is kind of wrapped up in all of these other services. Did you have any commentary on the removal of these federal fossil fuel subsidies? I think it has been really good to see Canada moving forward on the commitments they've made to removing fossil fuel subsidies. So you know that um, last year they put forward a plan to remove subsidies that are uh, made by Canada internationally on fossil fuels. And then that they are the first there. This is also a commitment that was made by G20 countries to remove what they're calling inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, um, you know, nationally. And Canada has been the first of the G20 countries to kind of put forward their definition and their plan of what removing inefficient fossil fuel subsidies will look like. So it's been really good to see Canada moving first on that. I know that we do have, you know, a fairly um, fossil fuel intensive um, economy. I think it it definitely is really good to see that movement. Um, again, I think it is one of the, the pieces that you know, it's not, as you said, kind of the be all and end all. It won't solve all the issues and needs to be done um, in a thoughtful way. But I think with working together with, you know, some of the regulations that are in place in Canada, the carbon pricing, um, as well as the clean fuel regulation, but then also things like the clean electricity regulation that's in the process of being developed, the cap on oil and gas, um, and the methane reduction regulations that are coming into play. Um, you know, as well as other things that are being developed by both federal and provincial governments will be really important to think about how they integrate together to really push for the emission reductions we need. You know, in terms of reducing our emissions overall, Canada has fallen short um, compared to some other countries in that and and really need to accelerate that towards 2030 if we're going to have a chance of um, saving off some of the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah, for sure. The the struggle continues, I think. And, you know, that struggle can be reduced to just one or the other. Like it can just be reduced to sort of an economic contest. Uh, it can be reduced to a political battle. But it feels to me like it's fundamentally like an ethical thing. Um, you know, we're talking about the loss of crops and not just property, but homes uh, and the loss of people to climate impacts. But I just want to, yeah, thank you for sharing all of your knowledge on this. It's been really, really helpful. Thanks. It was great to speak to you.